Hi, I'm Nim, and welcome to A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this week's episode, we're looking at Hirschsprung's disease, or known as congenital agganglionic megacolon. It's a condition we see often enough in paediatrics and neonatology. It's also something that bosses and registrars love to teach you about and question you on on the ward round. So it's helpful to know what it is, how it's managed, and how it can present. So grab a cup of tea, and let's learn all about Hirschsprung's disease. When we look at the embryology and pathogenesis of Hirschsprung's disease, we understand that it's a neurocrystinopathy, i.e. it's an issue with the neural crest cells and their migration. In embryogenesis, the neural crest cells migrate cephalocaudally. This process is usually completed by week 12, with the migration from mid-transverse colon to anus occurring in the last four weeks, so that's week 8 to week 12. It is during this stage that the cells themselves are more vulnerable to defects. It is also why the anganglionosis that is seen in Hirschsprung's disease is always distal to proximal, and it is always contiguous. Absence of ganglion cells in the Meissner or submucosal and Auerbach or myenteric plexus of a segment of the distal colon is what causes Hirschsprung's disease. Due to the lack of these ganglion cells, there is hypertrophy of the associated nerve trunks. The severity of the disease depends on the size of the agganglionic segment. So no ganglion cells leads to con- tonic contraction because the myenteric plexus is responsible for smooth muscle relaxation. Tonic contraction leads to an obstruction, and this presents often as a failure to pass meconium or intractable constipation. The proximal bowel then goes on to dilate due to the obstruction that is distal. That dilation causes abdominal distension. This can also cause vomiting. In the later stages, it can progress to a megacolon, and sepsis if it is severe. Implicated genes that have been associated with Hirschsprung's disease include the GEDNF gene, RET gene, the GFRA1 gene, which is involved in the neural crest cell migration, as well as the SOX10 gene and the EDNR8 gene. When we have a look at how common Hirschsprung's disease is, we can see that it occurs in about 1 in 5,000 live births. So it's not common, but it's also not unheard of. The male-to-female ratio of affected individuals is 4 is to 1, with males being more commonly affected. And when we look at the whole colon agganglionic Hirschsprung disease, we can see that the ratio is actually 1 to 1. About 20% of those with Hirschsprung's disease will have and another anomaly as well. And 15% will have an associated genetic condition, for example, Wardenberg syndrome. For those with non-syndromic Hirschsprung's disease, we do see some familial clustering. And there is a higher risk if the proband, or the initially affected person, is female. When we look at the extent to which the colon is involved, we can see that 80% of cases are short-segment disease, i.e. they're in the rectosigmoid region. 15-20% to 20% are long-segment disease. This is up to the proximal sigmoid. And then 5% are classed as total colonic agganglionosis.
now that we know how commonly it occurs, we need to know how does it present to us on the ward, in the clinic, or in the neonate. Hirschsprung's disease, we need to remember, is a functional distal bowel obstruction. Therefore, the features of its presentation reflect this pathogenesis. In neonates, this can present as a failure to pass meconium before 48 hours. Indeed, this is seen in 50 to 90% of infants with Hirschsprung's disease. They may have abdominal distension, vomiting, and they may be bilious if the obstruction is significant. Some may also have a forceful, explosive passage of stool on rectal examination, and this is called a blast sign. Be careful. Some neonates can present later with poor feeding, abdominal distension, and significant constipation. Not all diagnoses of Hirschsprung's disease are made as a neonate. 10 to 20% of diagnoses are beyond the newborn period, so it should be in the back of your mind in the slightly older child. These children tend to have ultra-short segment agangliosis rather than significant distances of colonic agangliosis. The older child can present with severe constipation with intervening episodes of diarrhoea. This constipation often is refractory to laxative use, appearance and enemas. There's also a lack of physiological urge to defecate, and some children can also present with a failure to thrive. In a child with Hirschsprung's disease, it's also really important to think about complications of Hirschsprung's disease, the biggest of which is Hirschsprung's enterocolitis, also known as toxic megacolon. This occurs due to marked dilation of the proximal bowel that leads to thinning of the bowel wall itself. Consequently, there's a bacterial overgrowth and translocation into the bloodstream, thereby leading to sepsis, shock, and also intestinal perforation. The child themselves may present with a fever, abdominal distension, vomiting, a tender abdomen, lethargy, and increased white blood cell counts, as well as band forms on their blood films. Children are more likely to present with a toxic megacolon before corrective surgery has been undertaken. However, it can occur even postoperatively within the first year. It is important to realise to never do a barium enema in this population, the reason being there is a risk of perforation. There is a mortality associated with Hirschsprung's enterocolitis and it's estimated that it is about 1%. Not all children with Hirschsprung's disease have it in isolation. It can be associated with an underlying congenital or syndromic abnormality. Down syndrome can be associated with Hirschsprung's disease. In fact, 2 to 15% of those with Hirschsprung's will have Down syndrome. However, only about 1% of children with Down syndrome will have Hirschsprung's disease. Other conditions that are associated with Hirschsprung's disease include congenital hypoventilation syndrome and intestinal neuronal dysplasia. And in these two conditions, about 20% of cases will have associated Hirschsprung's disease. Multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2A is also associated with Hirschsprung's disease, as are multiple syndromes, including Wardenberg syndrome, 
Bardet Beetle Syndrome and Cartilage Hair Hypoplasia. Now that we have an idea about how a person with Hirschsprung's disease may present, we next need to think about how do we investigate and evaluate a child with suspected Hirschsprung's disease. Abdominal x-ray in children with Hirschsprung's disease shows numerous dilated bowel loops due to the obstruction. In the neonate, they may present with a distal bowel obstruction and in such a case, you would get a contrast enema this is done without bowel preparation. On this study, you will see a reduced calibre rectum and sigmoid with a sawtooth appearance to the wall. It may also show you the location of the transition zone from ganglionated to agganglionic colon. In total aggang- colon agganglionosis, you may also see a shortened colon. If a transition zone can't clearly be detected, a follow-up post-excretion or post-evacuation film 24 hours later may reveal residual retained contrast in the colon, and this is suggestive of Hirschsprung's disease. Furthermore, a reversal of the rectostigmoid index, i.e. less than 1, is also suggestive of Hirschsprung's. While adbarium enema does aid in the exclusion of other causes of obstruction, such as small left colon syndrome, colonic atresia, and a meconium plug syndrome, it cannot exclude Hirschsprung's disease. Therefore, if you have an indeterminate or inconclusive barium enema, the best or gold standard to diagnose Hirschsprung's disease is biopsy. A diagnosis of Hirschsprung's disease is made with a rectal biopsy. And in children under the age of three months, this is done by a suction rectal biopsy facilitated either by paediatric surgery or paediatric gastroenterology, depending on your service. Histologically, we see that there is a lack of ganglionic cells in the myenteric plexus and an increase in acetylcholine esterase staining. There's hypertrophied nerve bundles and the nerves in the myenteric plexus are easier to see because of their hypertrophy. Now we move on to the management of Hirschsprung's disease. Initially, while we're awaiting the definitive diagnosis in the neonate, we need to manage them acutely. This may include rehydration if there's poor feeding or vomiting. Antibiotics may be required if there's concern for toxic megacolon. A nasogastric tube may be inserted to allow for gastric decompression. Additionally, Rectal irrigation may also be done to allow emptying of the colon. If there is indeed suspicion of Hirschsprung's enterocolitis, this is managed with IV fluid resuscitation, decompression of the bowel, including nasogastric tube and rectal tubes. Broad-spectrum antibiotics should be administered, the exact antibiotics of which should be based upon local guidelines and recommendations. Additionally, Careful rectal irrigation may be done, but note there is a risk of perforation with this. Ultimately, however, toxic megacolon needs surgery, and it's more urgent if there's perforation or necrotic gut involved. But what about the vast majority of children with Hirschsprung's disease, which don't have toxic megacolon? Well, the definitive management in these cases is surgery. 
So this means if you suspect Hirschsprung's disease, a referral to pediatric surgery is required to acquire a biopsy as well as to manage Hirschsprung's disease. A rectal pull-through procedure is done where the aganglionic bowel is resected and the proximal ganglionated bowel is anastomosed to the anus or a cuff of rectal mucosia. This can be a single procedure or it can be staged. Either way, levelling biopsies are taken to ascertain the level to which agganglionosis is present. And usually, they will anastomose about 5cm above the point at which ganglion cells are found. This is done to avoid pulling through the transitional zone, which is associated with inadequate emptying of the bowel. A stage procedure is done if there is significant colonic distension, or if the baby is quite small and the length of bowel is inefficient due to their size. A colostomy is done to decompress the bowel, which must ensure that the level of the stoma is ganglionated. And then, this is followed by a pull-through at a later stage with the stoma reversal and primary anastomosis. When we talk about pull-through procedures, there are three main types, and each surgeon has their own preference, and studies indeed have shown that all are more or less equally effective as long as they're done by an experienced surgeon who is well-versed in that type of pull-through. The first type is called a Swenson. In the Swenson, a ganglionic segment is removed down to the anus and healthy colon is anastomosed. Risk of damaging the parasympathetic nerves adjacent to the rectum does exist. Next, we have the Duhamel or the Duhamel method. In this method, dissection outside of the rectum is confined to the recto-rectal space. The interior wall of the ganglionic and the posterior wall of the aganglionic segment are anastomosed. There is a residual pouch of aganglionic bowel. This procedure does have risk of damaging the parasympathetic nerves adjacent to the rectum anteriorly. And finally, we have the suave. In the suave, dissection is done through the anus. The rectal mucosa is stripped from the muscular sleeve and anastomosed to the anus. So the outer layer of the agganglionic bowel is left behind as a muscular cuff. Complications of a pull-through include a transitional pull-through and this causes ongoing issues with evacuation and indeed about a third of patients who undergo a transitional pull-through require reoperation. Another complication that we've already touched upon is postoperative enterocolitis, and this can be as high as 45%, so it's something to keep in the back of your mind as well as to be aware of. Further on, you can get anastomotic strictures secondary to the connection between the bowel. Children may also have persistent obstructive symptoms despite a successful pull-through. Also, some children may have incontinence. In these situations, anal rectal manometry and contrast enema are able to distinguish the underlying cause and guide further management. So, let's have a recap. Hirschsprung disease, or congenital egg ganglionic megacolon, is a neurochristinopathy due to the absence of ganglion cells in the Meisner and Auerbach plexus of a segment of the bowel. 
and the bow itself is always distally to proximately affected in a contiguous manner. Hirschsprung's disease occurs in about 1 to 5,000 live births, with a male-to-female ratio of 4 to 1. It is classed by the extent of which the bowel is involved. 80% have short-segment disease, which is rectosigmoid. 15-20% to 20% have long-segment disease, which is proximal sigmoid. And 5% have total colonic agangliosis. It can present in the neonatal period with forceful or explosive passage of stool on rectal examination, a failure to pass meconium less than 48 hours, abdominal distension, vomiting, as well as poor feeding. Older children can present with ultra-short-segment agangliosis that causes severe obstruction with intervening episodes of diarrhea. These children also may have constipation that is refractory to laxative appearance and enemas. Assessment of a neonate with suspected Hirschsprung's disease includes an abdominal x-ray and a barium enema, or a contrast enema. This is done to delineate the decalibre of the bowel, as well as to help exclude other causes of bowel obstruction in the neonate. However, ultimately, the gold standard, or indeed the method of diagnosis, is through a rectal biopsy, which histologically shows us a lack of ganglionic cells in the myenteric plexus and an increase in acetylcholine esterase staining. Management of Hirschsprung's disease can be separated into management of toxic megacolon as well as definitive management. Management of toxic megacolon includes IV fluid resuscitation, decompression, as well as broad-spectrum antibiotics and immediate referral to paediatric surgery. Definitive management also requires a referral to paediatric surgery. Children with Hirschsprung's disease require a rectal pull-through procedure so that the agganglionic bowel is resected and the proximal ganglionic bowel can be anastomosed to the anus. Complications after pull-through include a transitional pull-through, of which some children may require reoperation. They can also get postoperative enterocolitis, so it's important to keep be aware and keep this in the back of your mind. Children can also have anal sphincter defects as well as anastomotic strictures. Some children may have persistent obstructive symptoms and others may have incontinence. In these children, anorectal manometry as well as contrast enemas can help distinguish the underlying cause and guide further management. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure chopping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.